Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called, Will the Christian Church Keep Its Promise? for World AIDS Day. It's a guest essay by Dr. Art Amon, the former director of the Pediatric Immunology and Clinical Research Center at the University of California Medical Center in San Francisco. In the summer of 1981, Dr. Amon treated a prostitute IV drug abuser in three of her children, all four of whom presented unusual deficiencies in their immune systems that were aggravated by opportunistic infections that didn't fit normal medical models of disease. He determined that the mother and all three children had contracted AIDS, which was tragic enough because the disease was fatal. But perhaps more devastating was his shocking conclusion, hotly contested and very controversial at the time, that HIV-AIDS was not limited to adults. Amon determined that HIV had passed from the mother to her children as an acquired disease and not something that was inherited. In 1982, he thus documented the first cases of AIDS transmission from mother to infant and also the first blood transfusion AIDS patients. In 1998, Amon founded Global Strategies for HIV Prevention, where today he ministers around the world. With a special focus on women and children, Global Strategy implements international strategies to prevent HIV infection and to work toward a generation free of HIV. Art's essay is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December 7, 2008, the second Sunday in Advent. It happens every year on December 1st, World AIDS Day. The theme for World AIDS Day this year is leadership, promoted with a campaign slogan, quote, Stop AIDS, Keep the Promise, end quote. World AIDS Day was initiated in 1988. In the 20 years that have followed, over 25 million people have died from AIDS. Another 2 million will die in 2008. About 40 million people are living with HIV today, nearly 95% of whom live in the developing world. These are grim statistics, causing one to pause and wonder just what promise is being kept. HIV is a preventable infection, and so, theoretically, there should be few new infections. With over 23 drugs to treat HIV, the number of deaths should be decreasing dramatically. But that's not so. Although the number of new infections has decreased, and people with HIV infection are living longer, more productive lives, there has not been a sea change in the epidemic. World AIDS Day is a time to reflect on why progress in stemming the epidemic has not been greater. One reason is that getting drugs to HIV-infected people in resource-poor countries is not easy. Paradoxically, most governments in poor countries 
where needs are greater and more urgent, are slow to respond to the needs of their people. Like kingships of the past, many governments view their people as existing to support their own need for power and control rather than what is necessary for the public good. Thus, bureaucratic delays hamper the delivery of life-saving drugs. Even when drugs are free, the failure to emphasize education and training has resulted in inadequate numbers of doctors and nurses and a lack of infrastructure to treat and care for HIV-infected people. All this might make one <clears throat> despondent, but there is hope. Education on HIV prevention has resulted in decreased numbers of infections in India, China, Kenya, Uganda, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Thailand, Brazil, and the United States. The incentive to change behavior is there. HIV is a treatable but ultimately fatal infection, and so prevention is essential. What more could be done to prevent HIV infection, and where does the Christian church fit in? Is there a void in leadership that has resulted in unfulfilled promises? As the HIV epidemic was taking off in the United States and in resource-poor communities, with few exceptions, the Christian church in America chose to stand on the sidelines. Issues of sexuality and blame took precedence over ostensibly sound theology and compassion. The teachings of Jesus were largely ignored. In the longest discourse in the Gospels, John chapter 4, Jesus met the Samaritan woman, a person with multiple sexual partners. He took the time to talk to her about the spiritual truths of living water. He himself was sustained as a result of that encounter. Elsewhere, in John chapter 8, as the crowd was ready to stone a woman found in adultery, Jesus called out and said, Let the person who was without sin cast the first stone. Turning to the woman, he asked, Where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? And she replied, No, sir. Then neither do I. Still another woman in the Gospels, likely a prostitute, took a jar of perfume and, weeping, wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair, and proceeded to kiss and pour the precious perfume over his feet. <coughs> These narratives contain deep truths that have meaning about how the Christian church is to view the HIV epidemic today. Jesus' leadership leads the way to overcoming condemnation, fulfilling the promises of hope that riddle the scriptures, and what is so desperately needed in the HIV epidemic today, a voice that speaks out to protect the increasing numbers of women and vulnerable children from the ravages of HIV infection. The HIV ep epidemic has shifted dramatically from 5% HIV-infected women in 1982 to over 50% in 2007.
As these are women of childbearing age, the number of HIV orphans, the children of HIV-infected women who died, has increased to 12 million worldwide, with over 6,000 new orphans added each day. Together, the HIV epidemic today is primarily one of women and children. The leadership required from the Christian Church is simply to do what it says it believes. The scriptures tell us clearly that our concern is to be with justice. We read in Psalm 117, verse 17, Learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Even more directly, the epistle of James states, true religion that is undefiled is this, care for widows and orphans. <clears throat> there lays before us yet another great test of whether the Christian church can truly become what it was meant to be, a defender of widows, orphans, refugees, and the oppressed. There is yet another opportunity for the Christian church to re respond to the HIV epidemic. Yet, in reality, it is not an opportunity of choice, but a compelling command. It's an issue from which none of us have permission to abstain. We read in Matthew 25, 37-40, Then the righteous will respond, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty, and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger, and invite you in, or in need of clothes, and clothe you? When did we see you sick, or in prison, and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. The question before the Christian church on this World AIDS Day or any other day, is whether it will once again bump up against the reality of the HIV epidemic and once again find itself AWOL. Or maybe this time we will keep our promises. Dr. Art Amon of Global Strategies for HIV Prevention, World AIDS Day. For books this week, I review Andrew Basevich, The Limits of Power, The End of American Exceptionalism, New York, Metropolitan Books, 2008, 210 pages. I discovered Andrew Basevich by reading his 2005 book, The New American Militarism, How Americans Are Seduced by War. It's a book in which he describes how our culture's normalization and even romantization of war pervades our national consciousness and perverts our national policies. <clears throat> a veteran of Vietnam and subsequently a career officer, a graduate of West Point and later Princeton where he earned a Ph.D. in history, director of Boston University's Center for International Relations, Basevich has described himself as a cultural conservative who views mainstream liberalism with skepticism, but who also was a person whose disenchantment which with, 
whose disenchantment with what passes for mainstream conservatism embodied in the Bush administration and its groupies is just about absolute. He has also identified himself <coughs> as a conservative Catholic. Bezovich's newest book is an unapologetic polemic that laments just how badly broken America is today. Its prophetic fire finds some vindication in that it was published just a few months before Wall Street imploded. You might argue that Bacevich doesn't say much that's new in this book, but you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who says it with such passion, erudition, eloquence, and sometimes sarcasm. The end of the Cold War was thought to have ushered in a long peace, with the sole superpower arrogating itself to the task of reshaping the world in its own image. In reality, in the aftermath of 9-11, the Bush administration, Bush administration initiated what Bacevich calls a long war against global terror terrorism that he describes as a permanent condition. This is a war, says Bacevich, of no exits and no deadlines. This long war in general, and the Iraq war in particular, have laid bare deep contradictions and dysfunctions in America. <clears throat> the root of this crisis rests in a facile notion of freedom, defined as the sacred right to consume, and manifested in what Basevich calls three interlocking crises, economic and cultural, political, and then military. After a brief introduction, Basevich devotes a chapter to each crisis. The cultural economic crisis expresses itself in wholesale profligacy, a relentless personal quest to acquire, to consume, to indulge, and to shed whatever constraints might interfere with those endeavors. Our profound addiction to cheap oil easy personal credit, massive trade imbalances between what we export and import, and the runaway federal debt, all these characterize this profound profligacy. In politics, we've witnessed the concentration of power in the executive branch, the deterioration of meaningful checks and balances, a feckless and dysfunctional Congress, and appalling incompetence in overall government. Aggravating this political crisis is an overall national security ideology, which specializes in disinformation and marginalizing dissent. Bush, says Basevich, is not to blame. He merely inherited and expanded this tendency, and it's a tendency that successive presidents will surely follow. <clears throat> In his analysis, of our military crisis, Basevich details our illusions about warmongering and the lessons, both real and imaginary, that we ought to learn from Afghanistan and Iraq, where, he says, quote, we are playing a losing hand. Will a new president or Congress make a difference? Wipe the slate clean and put the nation back on track? 
Basevich dismisses this as the grandest delusion of all, for it turns a blind eye to decades of dysfunction, whether under Reagan and Bush or Carter and Clinton. There is something touching about these expectations, writes Basevich, but also something pathetic, like the battered wife who expect that this time her husband will actually keep his oft-repeated promise never again to raise his hand against her. The abused wife, of course, is codependent, and only when she assumes full control of her own life will conditions change. Something of the same can be said of the American people, writes Basevich. As I write this review, The Limits of Power sits at number 10 on the New York Times bestseller list. Andrew Basevich, The Limits of Power, The End of American Exceptionalism. <coughs> for film this week, I review Gunning for That Number One Spot, 2008. This isn't an important film by any stretch of the imagination, but sports nuts and especially basketball fans will find it a fun film to watch. In September 2006, the top 24 high school players in the country gathered in Harlem to inaugurate the first annual Elite 24 All-Star Competition. The game is held at the legendary outdoor playground court in Harlem's Holcomb Rucker Park, where for 60 years many of basketball's greats lit up the scoreboard in front of a raucous urban crowd, hecklers, urban rap music, and the trash-talking announcers. This is a venue where you would never presume to give yourself a nickname. Your opponents do that after you prove your mettle. The documentary focuses on eight high schoolers in particular, interviewing their families, coaches, and scouts. An interesting subtext of the movie is how the attendant media, shoe companies, professional rankers, recruiters, and sponsors all point toward one thing, big money that results from basketball stardom. By the way, the final score was 141 to 139 but you'll have to watch the film to see which team won. And finally, for the second week in Advent, we've posted John Dunn's sonnet, Annunciation. Salvation to all that will is nigh. That all, which always is all everywhere, which cannot sin, and yet all sins must bear, which cannot die, yet cannot choose but die. Lo, faithful virgin, yields himself to lie in prison in thy womb, and though he there can take no sin, nor thou give, yet he will wear, taken from thence, flesh, which death's force may try. Ere by the spheres time was created, thou wast in his mind, who is thy son and brother, whom thou conceivest, conceived. Yet thou art now 
thy maker's maker, and thy father's mother. Thou hast light in dark, and shuttest in little room, immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. John Donne, Annunciation Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, December 7th, 2008, the second Sunday in Advent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.